Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Total Soccer Show's latest foray into the listener questions mailbag. On today's show, we're asking what's going on at Brendan Aronson's Union Berlin. We're selecting our favourite poophousery moments in soccer history and we're building an all-time USMNT roster. Watch out, World Cup. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today to do those things and many others, hello, Joe Lowry. Keep going. Keep going. Oh, man, I thought we were going to get the full-on extended goal call on that, but I'll, I'll still take it, Ryan. That was good. I'm excited to do the things and all the other things that we're doing on the show today. Let's do the things. Very much so. I was going to see how long I could keep that name going and see if you jump in at any point, but now that I decided to abandon it, I just I just wanted to I just wanted to hear how long you could go with it. And honestly, <laughs> I'm, I'm a little disappointed if I'm being truly transparent, but I know um, I know your intention was was pure. Thank you. Uh, and slightly lazy, but I appreciate that, that as well. Uh, <laughs> joining us, Joseph, to have this conversation and much, much more, Graham Ruthven. Hello, Graham. Hello, Ryan Bailey. How are you this fine afternoon? Uh, I'm doing very well indeed. Thank you very much for asking. Now, Graham, we know that you're um, you're, you're a pretty you're, you're a pretty strong big guy uh, from your Patreon <laughs> videos. We, we now learn that you're so strong. <laughs> Uh, that you actually have broken your laptop in half, basically, today. So you might be struggling to type and uh, to join in the conversation we're learning. Yeah, the impressive part is I don't even know how I did it. So mm. I'm just I'm just breaking aluminium uh, tech tech products in my with my bare hands. Yeah, it's not it's not ideal. I can't scroll left to right uh, today, so I can only see half of your face t- today, Ryan. Which, to be oh. honest, is you know an improvement. The good half or the bad half? Which one? Uh, the bad half, because the good is... half is the back. <laughs> hey there it is. Oh dear. <laughs> I'm just waiting. I'm just waiting for whatever Ryan said about Graham. Graham, you're a big strong boy, or whatever Ryan yeah, said. Yeah, that I, is TSS m- out of context on the Discord <laughs> right there. I am. I've never been more sure of anything in my life, and that is going to end up in that channel in the Discord. Yeah, nobody has ever said that about me before. The reason I'm so into football is, as a kid, I wasn't allowed to play rugby because uh, I wasn't big and strong. I was weedy and skinny and still am so. hang on so like the, you're at school and the rugby team's going out onto the field and like the coach says no not you too skinny uh, pretty much that is what happens in <laughs> Scotland you get separated half and half your rugby your football your rugby your football that's essentially what happens in high school in Scotland wow that actually happened in my school as well Graham uh, I went to a rugby playing school traditionally as well and because I was relatively, relatively tall I got siphoned off into the rugby team a few weeks later I managed to squeeze my way back over to the soccer side of things because I showed them how wimpy and, and uh, gentle I was basically <laughs> I'm imagining Ryan just like noodling his way around the field like, no, I'm a soccer boy, not a rugby boy. And then eventually they just kick you over to the other side. 
Yeah, my mum says I'm special. I said. I shouted as I went over to the other side of the field, Joe. Uh, it's it, it, it's uh, rugby is quite a thing, Joe. I don't know if you've ever played, or if you've ever played in February when the ground is solid frozen and you have to tackle someone on waist high and bring them to the ground. It's not fun. Don't well, like it. did you actually do that, or did you escape before February? What was the timeline here? Uh, in February, I believe I escaped. Nice. Okay, uh, so yeah. you had just a few of those hard frozen tackles, and then you were out of there. Yeah, not fun. Yeah. Not fun. Yeah. Don't recommend. Do not recommend. Let's stick with soccer, shall we, guys? Stick with the soccer. And you can do so at patreon.com slash Show, as already mentioned. We've got bonus episodes there. We've got bonus videos and access to that aforementioned Discord where the Out of Context TSS channel is rife with stuff because of the double entendres that we managed to slip out occasionally on this year program. Uh, no Taylor Rockwell here today, by the way. Taylor, we wish you well. Uh, well, actually, he's not sick. He's just uh, busy at the moment. But uh, thank you very much uh, for so joining us. So we don't wish you well. I think that's what Ryan is trying to communicate. <laughs> we do, if you we were will... ill, we would wish yeah. you well. Although Taylor didn't wish Graham well when he was ill. So maybe not. <gasps> but but if yeah, you were sick, that. we would... Yeah, so Graham knows. He's got receipts. If you were sick, you know, Ryan and I might wish you well. I don't know what Graham's doing. Mm. But since you're not, um, just... okay. Nothing. Yeah. Taylor, we wish you no specific harm at this point. I believe last week Taylor went, meh, is what his response was to me being ill. So my response Mm. today is, meh. Taylor's not here. Yes, he does. I mean, you being ill, I can understand. It's quite a common occurrence. (laughs) I don't know how else to say that, Graham. (laughs) Right. So we can't be bothered to deal with Graham all the time. Yeah. To be fair, so is Taylor doing random building construction projects in his yard, which I believe is maybe what's happening today. But yeah. Maybe so. All right. Well, maybe we'll find out on the Patreon in due course. Uh, In the meantime, let's get to our listener questions. uh, Totalsoccershow.com slash questions. If you would like to submit, just like Josiah Eccles has done so here. How would a lineup of all-time past and present USMNT players in their primes perform at the next World Cup? Would they even be favoured against ridiculously stacked rosters like France? Mm, Joe, I'm coming to you first on this one, just as you take a giant swig from your water bottle. Uh, first question for you, how many present USMNT players make it into your dream past and present lineup? Um, So I have maybe between... Five and seven. You can do wow. a whole okay. lot of, of nebulous roster building here. The reality, I think I want to start with the big picture and work my way backwards because I don't have a full squad. The reality is, would they be favored against teams like France? No, absolutely not. Like my overall answer to this question is that almost nothing changes for the United States. They would be better. I'm not denying that. I think they would very clearly be better, but they wouldn't be better enough to be tournament favorites or favorites to make the semifinal. You know, Greg Berhalter talks about wanting to make the semifinal. That is the hope for this team at the 2026 World Cup. I I will bet you any amount of money when the book odds come out, and maybe they already are, the U.S. is not going to be one of the top four teams based off of the odds makers. And you know what? The odds makers are the ones that make money doing this stuff, and they are right a lot of the time. The U.S. is not going to be one of the top four teams in the world in 2026, and they're not going to be one of the top teams in the world even if they can go back in time, maybe if they have a time machine and can use it for other things, and they could find some resources that would help them along the way. But you would add in players like Landon Donovan, Clint Dempsey, Tim Howard, Michael Bradley, Claudio Reyna, if that's something that you would like to do at this point in time. Like Judon O'Brien, Eddie Pope, you can add in all of these players, and they're going to make the team better. Like you can go through, and all of those guys could conceivably be starters. You gotta find room for Christian Pulisic somewhere. You gotta find room for Gio Reyna somewhere. You gotta find room for Florin Balogun. He's the starting number nine. You gotta find room for some of the midfield. That's why I think you know, you keep a big chunk of this current team. 
but you will add in other players. It's just not going to matter. They're not killing Mbappe. They're not Jude Bellingham. They're not Vinny Jr. They're not global superstars, even at their peak, all these players, both the current group and the past group. And the best countries out there, they have a bunch of those global superstars. Like they have Mbappe, they have Jude, they have these players. The U.S., even if they're able to dip back into the, the entire history of their talent pool, they, they can't rival that. All right, so nothing really changes in your opinion, Joe. How about from the coaching perspective? Is it Jürgen? Who is, who's the coach? <sighs> the, the sad answer is I don't think there's a clear, obvious option. People certainly hate Greg Berhalter, but people hate whoever the current USMNT coach is because they want them to work a magic trick that's very, very difficult slash impossible to work and make this group into much, much, much more than the sum of their parts. You know, I do think Bob Bradley is a fairly good manager. I think Bruce Arena has done things well, just not in the 2018 cycle. Jurgen certainly messed up a lot of those things earlier on in that cycle. I, I genuinely do not have an answer that I feel strongly about on the coaching side. All right. Uh, Graham, will you remove yourself from the fence that Joe sat on there? What? How you It's feeling? nice up here, Graham. It's cushy, man. <laughs> yeah. So manager-wise, I'm going for Bob Bradley. I think as because I think we've seen more from I know Bruce Arena has that 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 uh, record breaking regular season with the Revs, but Bradley I know was a, it was a bit of a disaster at TFC, but recently has achieved a great deal of success at LAFC and is still coaching at like a relatively high level. I know he's in Norway just now, and it's difficult to gauge what the level there actually is. But yeah, I think Bob Bradley would probably be my manager. I, I tried to build a team here, and this is where I'm I'm now a little bit nervous because Joe said he had what. What did you say? Five or six from the current well, I'm team, I'm just sort of Joe. picking that off the top of my head because I didn't actually go through and build a whole like 11 out of this. So I want to hear yours, Graham. Yeah, so my, my team is very much, I think, skewed to... And this might just be my perspective. I think it's easier to make a judgment on players once their, player, their careers are yes. over, right? Yeah. Uh, that is much, much easier to do. So in goals, I had, uh, I had Brad Friedel. I could have gone with Tim Howard or Casey Keller as well. Left back was probably the one I struggled with most of all, but I've gone with Demarcus Beasley. Um, maybe maybe Anthony Robinson gets in at left back. And this is the thing, a lot of the current players, it's kind of coin flips between the current player and like a past legend. Right back, I've gone for Steve Chirundolo again. I, I could have gone for Sejino Dest in that position. Centre back was uh, like a little bit easier. Um, I've gone for uh, Bocanegra and I struggled with the second centre back, but I've gone with uh, Onyewu, with, with Gooch as the second centre back. Then my midfield is Claudio Reyna, Michael Bradley, again, I could have put McKenney in there. He was in contention. I find the attack a little bit easier. There's one thing I do disagree with uh, on Joe quite strongly, um, but we'll come to that. My attack is, sent, uh, is uh, Clint Dempsey in the central attack in midfield position. Then I've got Christian Pulisic on the left side. He's the one current player that I was absolutely dead certain on. Landon Donovan on the right isn't perfect because he, it wasn't his best position, but I find I feel like I have to find a, a place for him in this team somewhere and I could maybe have him and Dempsey switching position. Up front, I've got Brian McBride. Now, Balogun might be that player in time and I would predict he probably does become that player in time, but really he's only had one consistent goal-scoring season and Brian McBride did it over a longer period of time in the Premier League. Like There's a Premier League club that has a bar named after Brian McBride, like he was successful for Fulham. I think he's got like 40, 50 goals for Fulham over the course of his career. So yeah, I've gone for Brian McBride over, over Balogun right now. I'll, I'll fight you to the death on that one, Graham. We don't actually have to do that on the show. Brian McBride, very good player. His scoring heights, you know, I'm looking at FB ref right now. I think nine goals was his single season record with Fulham back when the Premier League was not the same behemoth that it is today. I'm not saying that it wasn't among the best leagues in the world, but it wasn't the same Premier League number one dot, 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 
La Liga, Bundesliga, dot, Serie A, dot, 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 Liga, that it is today. Florian Balkan has scored his the majority of his goals in certainly the fifth best league in the world, or, or maybe even the sixth. He has not played in, in quite the same level as, as Brian McBride, although I don't think McBride's numbers really make up for that necessarily. So I'd still go Balgan, but I understand McBride. Like, that's a reasonable decision. And all of the choices that you made there, Graham, are reasonable ones. Like, you can split hairs about whether you should go with McKenney or Reyna or whether you want to go, I mean, or, or uh, Jedi Robinson on the left side, or if you want to go with, with a pass player. You can do that all over the field. I would lean a little bit more towards this current group and maybe splitting it, what I say, five or six players. I think that tracks. I think that's about right. And and what did you have, Graham? Like three of the current players in that list? Uh, two of them? So I had two, yeah. Two. It wasn't, it wasn't a very high number. But here's the thing. One, when we get to the end of these players' career, I I, I would yeah. predict that that number will be much higher. I just, I just find it difficult to make judgment calls on players' mid-career, particularly someone like Balogun, who I hope this doesn't happen. I hope he does fulfill his potential. But there's it's not impossible that he kind of flames out and doesn't become the player that we, we think he's yeah. going to be. And then we look back and that comparison between someone like Brian McBride, who was consistent, reasonably consistent, at least over a number of years in the Premier League, that comparison looks a bit silly in hindsight if that does happen to Balogun. I just think even, so if we view this question thinking about 2026, and we've we've also gotten a little sidetracked here, right, into the past versus present U.S. discussion rather than all-time U.S. discussion versus other current national team discussion, which is what Josiah was actually asking about. But I do think this is an interesting combination. I think, Graham, even by the time the summer of 2026 rolls around. If you just said, hey, the World Cup is going to be the last soccer game that all these players play. They've just decided they don't want to play anymore. I think this current group, like I think you're underselling the quality of this current group a little bit. I think if you go through and really look back at, at some of these players, I think Tyler Adams and McKenney and Musa and Reyna and Weah and, uh, and Pulisic and Bally, like I think all of these guys compare very, very favorably to even what the other players from past eras have done over the course of their entire careers, not in terms of volume, but this isn't about volume, right? It's in terms of peak and what they can contribute in any given game. So again, I, I lean more, a little bit more towards the current group and think, you know, we don't necessarily even need all of the hindsight of another decade to then look back. But still, what we all can agree on is it just doesn't matter. Like in this, in this hypothetical yeah. experiment, the U.S. is still not, not guaranteed to go far in a World Cup. That was going to be my next point. I, I wholly agree with that. I, I, I don't think even if we build, build an all-time USMNT roster, I, I don't know if it gets any further than the current USMNT side does in a World Cup because the big gulf in international soccer is between the Tier 1 and Tier 2 nations. That's why every World Cup comes around, you sort of know for certain that one out of about eight countries is going to win that World Cup. And that is where... The, the, the US, that gulf is where the US finds itself stuck and it has to make a, a big generational leap to become a tier one nation. And I don't think adding Steve Turundolo, as good as he was, or Demarcus Beasley or any of these guys, I don't think it helps with, with bridging that gap. Yeah. There you go. Well, maybe in a few years, guys, we'll all meet up at Balogun's Bar at the Emirates and uh, <laughs> we'll have proven everything wrong. We'll That's a good ring to maybe. It. I like yeah, it. It does. It does. Sounds like Joe's got some Brian McBride and prejudice, frankly. Did that work? No. <laughs> that was worse. Too you literary. should have left it at the bar, Joe. Should have left it there. Okay. Uh, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk Union Berlin and much more back shortly. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions. Uh, gritty for the Union. Gritty for the Union. Guess where this person is from? Uh, everyone is talking about the Ajax breakdown, but can we talk about the fire truck of failures that has happened in Brendan Aronson's Union Berlin? Sincerely, a Philadelphian who fears for the future of the Aronson brothers. So, Graham, uh, Union are 16th in the Bundesliga. 12 games on the trot they have lost. A 12-game losing streak in all competitions. Their last win, their last non-loss was August 26th. This team is in the Champions League, Graham. Yeah, this is what happens when you play in Hertha Berlin Stadium. This is the the curse that is put upon you, of course, Union Berlin in the Champions League this season playing in there. That's only 25% uh, of those losses, though, Graham, to be fair. Yeah, but the curse affects 100% of the games. <laughs> That's what happens with when, when, with Hertha Berlin. Um, I guess the first thing to mention, if we're looking at this question in an analytical sense, um, the first thing to mention is that Union Berlin, they, they overperformed their underlying numbers pretty dramatically last season. So last season, Union Berlin's expected points was 446 and they actually finished with 62 points, which put them in the top four and put them in the Champions League. So for context, 44 points would have put them in the bottom half of the table. And their conversion rate in front of goal was absolutely wild. They had the second fewest shots in the Bundesliga last season. Uh, and, 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 and get this, this might be the most stark stat of all. They were dead last for expected goals in the Bundesliga last season, which I had to, I had to double check that. that. That is an incredible number. So when you talk about a team getting hot and overperforming, this is exactly what we're talking about. And it happened two seasons in a row for Union Berlin, not quite to the same extent because they didn't finish in the top four the season before last season. But nonetheless, this had become... A weirdly consistent thing about Union Berlin was that they were they were overperforming, and this isn't a, this isn't necessarily a, a hindsight is twenty twenty thing because I remember last season us talking about how Union Berlin were overperforming. We were expecting a, a a bit of a dip. It didn't come. They finished in the top four. It seems to have happened this season. So this season, they're second bottom for XG in the Bundesliga. Um, they're only underperforming that by 1.8 goals over 10 games. Uh, expected goals against says they're underperforming that by 6.5, which is, is quite a lot, actually, in context of the rest of the league and suggests that maybe they will level out and opponents will stop scoring so many goals. It seems to have flipped where last season Union Berlin were taking more chances than um, their expected goals. And this season... Opposition teams are scoring or taking more chances than their, their expected goals against uh, Union Berlin. So that maybe explains why there's been this drop off. There has been some criticism of the signings Union Berlin made in the summer as well. So Benucci hasn't really 
He hasn't really brought the assurance they were looking for at the back. I think the most disappointing thing about him is that we haven't seen him as a distributor from defence, which I have to imagine is why Union Berlin signed him in the first place. We'd seen him, seen him distribute, pass those balls out from the back, those long diagonal passes for, for Juventus for a long time. I think Union Berlin were looking for that quality. We haven't really seen it so far. And there's been criticism that the club has also signed players who didn't really fit into Urs Fischer's style, and that has now been exposed with... Uh, Union in three competitions this season and one of them being the, the Champions League I saw a, a funny like uh, gif meme of uh, Ryan you might know this scene from The Simpsons where Bart is playing the three chess boards all at once yeah. and the, the, it's implied that he's some sort of genius and then the three guys go checkmate 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 just losing every single one that kind of feels like Union Berlin this season so yeah um, it's not been a good season for Union Berlin there has been a, a correction a pretty dramatic correction in their, in their, in their performance and their underlying numbers but we maybe shouldn't be so surprised given this is what we've seen from that we've seen from them in the last uh, two seasons as well hmm a correction. Graham using stock market terminology, Joe. How do you feel about it? I'm so proud, Graham. I feel like I could shed... I feel like I am shedding multiple tears right now. That's that's a lot of what I had in, in my notes, to be honest with you. This is something that we talked about, Graham. You're absolutely right. We talked about this last year as Union Berlin were going on this incredible run to the Champions League. And it was incredible. Like, we don't need to take any of that away. and We're not taking any of that away. The reality is they were not finding enough chances last year. Like, finding enough good spots... And the attack, they were so incredibly efficient, like unsustainably efficient. 43.8% possession last year under Urs Fischer. They were playing against the ball. They were going out on the counter. And their their ability to hit on the counter last year was incredible and not something that we're going to see over and over again because that's just not how soccer works. Like a commentator talks about how, oh, a striker should have done better there. Well, the reality is players miss chances. And sometimes in soccer, on the, on the commentary side, it's presented like, you know, that doesn't happen and that every miss is a surprise rather than an expectation. And the goals part is the surprise. Union Berlin had had figured out a hack for last year. They, they were in an incredibly hot run of form. Geraldo Becker was their leading scorer. He hasn't scored a goal in the Bundesliga this year. Brendan Aronson, one of their biggest signings, he comes in on loan, hasn't scored a goal this year and is not a goal-dangerous attacking player. They've crashed back down to earth, and, and when a team overperforms, and you can look at that from a, a, a an underlying numbers perspective, you can even look at this from a salary perspective. As much as I like to talk about data and other folks out there like to do the same, Graham now apparently is fully on board. The glasses look great on you, Graham. I'm, I'm a big fan. Like, mm -hmm. there are very few things that we know for sure about this. There are very few things that we know for sure about how soccer works. One of the things that we're pretty sure about is that the more these big European teams spend on their rosters, the more they spend on their salaries, the better they're going to be. Because the general thought is if you pay, if you pay players more, that means they are worth being paid more. Manchester City has a giant wage bill. Barcelona, like these giant clubs have huge wage bills because they have the best players. Union Berlin don't have that. They're a much more modest club. And because of how big the gulf is between the elite and everybody else, it makes it incredibly difficult to go out there and sustain your success. So when a team overperforms, and you can look at that from a financial side, you can look at that from the actual on-field soccer side, both of those things apply to Union Berlin, they crash back down to earth. That's what happened to Leicester when they won the Premier League title. Then they have Champions League to deal with, just like Union Berlin do this year. So that complicates things even further. It happened to Leicester. It happened to Austin FC and MLS last year. It's happening to Union Berlin. There are dozens more examples from all around the world. This happens. Like some team goes on a heater, then they cool off, and then you're back down to earth. It's, it's difficult, and it certainly, from a Philly perspective, doesn't make anybody feel great about Brendan Aronson, and I, I've already sort of aired some of my concerns about Brendan Aronson on this show before, but it is, 
like Graham mentioned, it is not unexpected here. Yeah, um, just flipping the chat towards Brendan Aronson for a moment. I, I found an article on a German site called Football Transfers, and they were ranking signings. What does it mean, Graham? What does it mean? The, <laughs> well, we'll never know, Ryan. We'll never decipher that one. Um, they were ranking signings made in the in the Bundesliga over the summer. Their scale was a bit weird. It seemed like six was the was the worst, and one was the best. They'd they'd ranked Brandon Brandon Aronson as a five point five, and uh, this was the quote. So far, Aronson has, Aronson has turned out to be too small in the chest for the intense and physical Union game. After 11 appearances, there is still no goal or assist. Not good enough. So the thing that we thought would make Aronson a good fit for Union Berlin, the energy and the kind of Red Bullness, apparently hasn't been there for him as well as the kind of creativity that Joe has raised concerns about. So that's that's not a great sign for Brendan Aronson no. at Union Berlin at the moment. No, it's it's very much not. Uh, what is it, too small in the chest? Is that how it translated, Graham? Yeah. <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> that's fine, to, to start Let's off with. Just leave that uh, there. Let's yeah, we'll that do, we're just going to leave that there. Yeah, it, the Aronson signing was was a confusing one, and if Union Berlin wanted goal scoring out of him, they, bought, they, they went out to find. They didn't purchase him. They went out to find the wrong player. And if they wanted a big body in midfield, they also bought the wrong player. Like, this is about going out and, and finding an Aronson, a player who's going to be a pest. He's going to be a high-pressing maniac. He's not somebody who really is going to dominate 50-50s. So, yeah, troubling times there for Union Berlin. And then one more quick note on Bonucci. If they bought him to distribute, they went out and have the wrong manager leading their squad because that's not something that Urs Fischer really asks of his center backs on any consistent basis. Bonucci is a fantastic ball-playing center back, but Union Berlin play against the ball. Like, they're not building up with these really intricate patterns. They're not dominating possession to go and have their center backs break lines. They bring in Bonucci, I would assume, as an organizer, and he'll bring quality there, but you also do lose out on, on his biggest genuine attribute, which is the ball-playing, so... Yeah, lots of missteps for Union Berlin. Yeah, the good news is that they have Napoli in the Champions League. And then uh, next weekend, it's uh, table-topping Bayer Leverkusen. So oh, good. That's good news for, for them. <laughs> Things are going to turn. <laughs> nice turnaround in the streak coming for Union then. Wonderful stuff. Is there, a, is there a major city in Europe that has more underachieving top teams than Berlin with Union and Hertha? I'm trying to think. I can't quite get one. It's... No, I think we've had this question in listener questions before, and Berlin was probably the city that we landed on. So yeah, I think that probably is the, the right answer. <sighs> okay, Berlin. All right, fair enough. Let's go. Thank you, Gritty, by the way, for that question. Let's go to Paul Nichols for the next one. Imagine a world where players were locked into a single professional club once they made their senior team debut like they are for national teams. Who would be the powerhouses of club football in this hypothetical world today? For what it's worth, says Paul, I think Dortmund might be one of the best. Um, I think we're all probably nodding along with that one. Joe, how do we feel about this one? To me, it feels like it's still a lot of the big clubs who would be among the powerhouses. Your Barcelonas, your Man United, your Ajaxes, teams who've had long had a lot of support and a lot of money anyway, but have just, you know, put it in the right direction. There's only one big club in those three that you mentioned, Ryan. I don't know what's up with that. And it's not Manchester United. It's not Ajax. It's Barcelona. They are my <laughs> pick. Barcelona is the the top choice for me, not least because they have helped produce the greatest player who's ever touched a soccer ball in Lionel Messi. He is sort of the difference maker here amongst a lot of good teams with a lot of good players in this hypothetical world. Only one of them has Messi. And so that sort of tips the balance a bit for me. Others that are included on this list, and I can I can go into Barcelona a bit more detail here shortly. Ajax is on the list. The quality that they produced over time, Johan Cruyff, Marco van Bastian, you know, De Boris, you have Wesley Snyder, you have De Ligt, De Jong, 
Christian Eriksen, Masrawi, Urien Timber. I started to make 11s here and then I just sort of gave up. But like that is really a, a huge chunk of players that you can almost make a functional team out of. There's also, though, some of the, the clubs that are not genuine powerhouses, like they're not making huge waves in the Champions League. Some, some of them are not even in Europe, right? I think about some of the academies in Brazil. I think about some of the academies in South America and some of the clubs in Portugal. So I have Santos on my list, not least because they have Pele and Neymar that both debuted for them and are two of the greatest attacking players of all time among the greatest soccer players ever. You can have those two as your stars up front and then put a bunch of functional players around them and you have a really functional to good players around them and you have a really, really good team. Sporting Club de Portugal is on my list. Ronaldo, Luis Figo, Nani, that's a, a pretty strong front line. You can work your way backwards and, and they have a lot of talent in midfield and along the defense, Rui Petruccio and goal. Benfica is on the list, Ruben Diaz, Jao Cancelo, Bernardo Sil I mean, just like this is the Portuguese national team, those clubs in a lot of respects. But I keep coming back to Barcelona, like the quality that they have, you can roll with the Busquets, Xavi, and Yesta midfield. All of those players made their first team debut for Barcelona. Lionel Messi on the wing. You you actually can put together a real 11 of these players. And so fat, you can go on one wing. Like it is, it is an incredible squad, this Barcelona squad that you can make in this reality. And they've got Leo Messi. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Graham, can we can we legitimately throw Southampton into the mix of these new powerhouses, given the... Uh... Was it the black box they called it, which sort of produced all their data that got all those players that they eventually sold to Liverpool, and of course, like mm. players like Gareth Bale coming through there, Luke Shaw, Theo Walcott, um, they've done pretty well over the years. Yeah, I think Liverpool might have bought that black box as well because a few years ago I would have agreed with you, but it feels like the the, the conveyor belt has maybe slowed a little bit at Southampton. That, that's going to happen, right, for for clubs certainly of of that size. You are going to have some generations that are more fruitful than others. Um, to answer this question, I went to the incredibly named CIES Football Observatory. I like to think that it is an actual observatory and they use the big lens to spot like skied penalties every every so often. So like Harry Kane's penalty from the Qatar World Cup is just flying over the, the sky and they're using the big lens to look at that. Anyway, um, I spent a lot of time in my head thinking about what a football observatory would look like. Uh, CIES is, is good for this sort of thing because they, they add kind of data and numbers to theories like this and they back up Paul's theory about Dortmund because they say... In Europe's big five leagues, Dortmund have given the most minutes to players under the age of 21 over the last five years. So 28.5 of their total minutes went to players under 21. Now, of course, that is, that's a little bit different from giving players their debut, senior debuts. But nonetheless, you can join the dots between those two things. The caveat with Dortmund is that they had uh, two players called Jude Bellingham and Erling Haaland over the last five years that are maybe bumping up those numbers. But nonetheless... Dortmund are certainly on that list. Next in the list was Nice at 24.3%, then Monaco at 24.1%, and then Rennes at 20.7%. So League 1 seems to be the place to go if you're a young player looking for a, a, an opportunity. The, the, the highest for from all leagues in the world was the University of Riga's team, which feels kind of like cheating that they would be included in this because, of course, they're given a lot of game time to under-21s, but they were at 88%, which I presume makes that makes that uh, that one overage student feel pretty bad that they're not at 100% for the last <laughs> five years. But, yeah, a lot of the clubs that Joe mentioned are also on my list. Uh, Barcelona, you'd have to think over the last two seasons, certainly since Xavi has come in, they would rank pretty highly in, the, in kind of the top ten. They weren't in CIES's list because it was five years and Ronald Koeman before. 
Xavi didn't really want to give young players an opportunity, but Pedri, Gavi, Fermin Lopez, Baldi, all those all those guys, that kid that scored with his first touch a few weeks ago and hasn't been seen since, uh, he would be in, in the Barca team as well. <laughs> then Ajax uh, was also on my list. Chelsea are good at giving players debuts. They, they just don't tend to keep hold of those players unless they're called Rhys James. So they might rank pretty highly. A couple other suggestions. I had Sport and Lisbon as well, Joe. And PSG, they're in the same category as Chelsea. They give players debuts and then allow them to leave to go to other clubs. Maybe that is changing now with guys like Zaire Emery and a few more French-born players coming through in that first team. FC Dallas and MLS as well, famous for their youth academy and giving um, opportunities to player like, players like Weston McKenney and uh, who else, Ricardo Pepe and a number of others so yeah that that is the list that I came up with Joe your criteria for Barcelona and I don't disagree with it was that having Leo Messi having produced Leo Messi that automatically puts them right up there by that logic we have to add Birmingham City in there don't we because of, of course. future world's greatest player coming from there as well they're actually well, I, not called Birmingham City anymore it's Bellingham City they yeah, retired Bellingham the shirt City name FC. and now they've changed the club name as well yeah yep. Ryan I, I totally agree with you I mean I think that I, actually no if if Jude Bellingham had scored after we did the big thing episode about him then Birmingham City were going to change their name and they would be on the list because he did not they're they're actually just in my honorable mentions category okay I was trying to get the mojo back on board for Jude Bellingham so he can score some late winners in his next few games we'll see we'll see time will tell uh, thank you very much indeed, Paul, for that question. Let's take one more break. When we come back, we're talking crazy formations. We're talking poop housery, and we're going back in time. Back shortly. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions. Guy Yedweb has been back in touch. Hello, Guy. Inspired by a joke from Braggy on the Discord, can you pitch how you'd make a 7-2-1 formation work for a specific club or country to meet their goals? What tactical no. instructions would you give the side and what key players would you bring in to make it work? Now, Graham, we have to make it clear, this question was submitted before Spurs-Chelsea on Monday, <laughs> where basically we, for phases of this game, we did have a back seven. We had a 7-0-1 with a, a, a points here, did we not? Yeah, that that certainly seemed to be the way for Spurs uh, against Chelsea, which, by the way, was the the one of the craziest matches I have ever watched. There were five goals, five disallowed goals, two red cards. Spurs playing this insane high line that just made the match so entertaining. So yeah, um, maybe Guy knew something that we didn't when he was asking this uh, this question, but. I uh, I struggled with this question a little bit because I understand there are different phases of, of matches and it maybe has happened at some point that a team in a phase of a match has played a 7-2-1. Um, but as your kind of base shape, I don't think you would ever really want to do this. Uh, and I'm certainly not the sharpest tactical mind. But I guess 
guess the idea would be to sit deep and plug the gaps with your seven defenders and then give as much space as possible to your two midfielders and one forward to hit out on the break. And when I was thinking about how this might work, it crossed my mind that this isn't too dissimilar to how uh, Mourinho wanted Tottenham to play. And I'm sure Spurs fans are grateful that those days are over. Uh, and even in the post-Coglu days, the 7-2-1 looks a little bit different as it did in the Mourinho days, as we saw last night. But I think you'd want, in terms of key players that you'd want for this to work, um, I think you'd need a defender who can ping long balls forward into space. So I, I, if I can have Alexander-Arnold in this team, that would help or maybe even Ederson as the quarterback goalkeeper, um, I think you'd need some advanced players to have... Uh, those three advanced players, I think they would need to have pace and directness. So someone like Son Heung-min or Vinicius Jr. Um, I need some proper wingbacks who are good at getting forward at pace, but also have that defensive instinct, instinct and, and, and can get back and be part of that defensive line of seven. So I'm taking Pete Juan Quadrado on one side and then I'll have Yao Cancelo on the other so that he can push into midfield and I can cheat a little bit and get an extra player into that central midfield uh, unit when we're playing out. And then the midfield is really tough because I, I think my my sort of, I think the line of possession is going to have to be really deep with seven at the back. Um, so I think I just want ball carriers who can break that first line of opposition press. Otherwise, I'm just going to get pegged in and not be able to get out so I'm taking uh, Frankie de Jong certainly for one I think Frankie de Jong for, in deep positions and in, in, in deep midfield positions is maybe the best ball carrier in world football and then I'm maybe taking uh, you know Jude Bellingham because he's like a striker and a midfielder in one so I can get another player forward so yeah that's that's my best shot at it alternatively you could just not play a 7-2-1 and that might be a better idea <laughs> that is a good alternative I suppose Joe where did you land on this one I'm sort of fascinated about what would happen if you if you really did this and, and thought about playing a low block in a 7-2-1 and basically just had seven players across the top of your box. Like you, you would be protecting the box very, very well, just protecting the space sort of outside the box to either side very, very poorly. And you'd have a really hard time transitioning forward into the attack. I just wonder, you know, would would the opposition just be forced to play in ball after ball after ball from the half spaces or take a bunch of long shots. I wonder like sort of how this actually would impact your your success. My thought in terms of how you convince a team to do this, if you're talking to players, the messaging is that we want to be the hardest team to play against in the world, right? Every day you need to be bought in and, and ready to make life miserable for whoever you're up against. Like that is the the line you tell players. And from a front office perspective, the approach is, you know, we can talk about Union Berlin here as an example. The idea is we can try to make up the quality gap between us and say Bayern Munich who will clearly beat us in 1v1s in the open field. So we want to not let those 1v1s happen. We want to protect our space. We want to make them suffer. That's that's the messaging you use to try and convince people of this. In reality, there's a happier medium that you can find than, than the 721. But to make this work, I really did lean almost all the way into the defensive side. And I, I did build an 11 that I want for this. So my wish list is I need some hard-nosed center backs. I need some versatile center backs. I need some some real up-and-down wing backs who are almost wingers. And then I need a number nine who can bring others into the game because think about how isolated those attackers are going to be. I need a number nine like that. And I need two, like Graham, you said, ball carriers. I need two kind of ball carrier chance creator types that are still mobile enough to help out defensively. So my lineup didn't do a goalie. But I've got Reese James as my right wing wing back. He's playing on the right side. I have Alessandro Bastoni as my right wing back. 
He's got flair. He's got comfort on the ball. He's very, very good in possession. I've got John Stones as my right-sided center back. Versatile. I'm also cheating here, Graham. He can step up into midfield just like you had Yaconcello do. Ruben Diaz is my central center back in my back seven. He's hard-nosed. He's going to get the job done. Virgil van Dijk is my left-sided center back. Another hard-nosed defender, but also really, really good distribution-wise. David Alaba is my versatile left-sided center back. He can step up and play defensive midfield in a pinch, and he's excellent at delivering set pieces. So that's a real asset here too. And then uh, Alfonso Davies is my left wing wing back, and he's just a winger, basically. Then I've got Jude Bellingham and Kevin De Bruyne as my midfield attacker hybrid people, and then Harry Kane is bringing everybody else into the game. I think with this collection of talent, you would actually do fairly well as long as players had a bit more freedom than just staying in that rigid 7-2-1, but um, I'm, not, I'm not even sure I've totally convinced myself on this process, Guy. I apologize. What, what are the expectations on a wing-wing back as opposed to a wing-back? They have to be even quicker. Just uh, extra in... wingy, I think, really. Like okay. extra extra up and down the wings, <laughs> the, thing, the double wing. The thing, that I struggled, the thing I struggled with with this question was actually trying to figure out if there'd be enough space to have a line of seven players across the pitch. Like, trying to figure out, not only am I playing a back three with a wing back, there's then another player on the outside of that wing back. Like, where is that player going? Well, Graham, this actually made me think while you guys were talking is, what if there was a world where we changed the dimensions for the soccer field so it was wider than it is long, so we basically switch it 90 degrees and have the goals where the halfway lines are? Would a 7-2-1 work then? Because you've got you, you've covered the width, you don't need to have that much forward to drink. It would during. work better, right? Wouldn't it, uh, it would work better theoretically? I guess the problem is if you if you flip the field ninety degrees, the wings like matter even less then than they do now, right? Because so far you're so far away from goal, right? You have like the entire <laughs> length of the field. You have half of the normal length of the field just to cut the ball in from outside. So. I don't know how much those would actually get utilized and maybe teams would just completely abandon them and kind of keep doing the same stuff. But honestly, Ryan, you kind of broke my brain and I'm kind of into it. Yeah, I'm not sure I have the mental capacity to work out how that would change soccer. But would you have like goalkeepers shooting on occasion? Because the distance from goal to goal would. actually wouldn't be that far. I also think you need goalkeepers as your wing wingbacks, because uh, they're the ones who can get the distance to get it actually into the box. <laughs> I kind of want to see wow. this now, just purely for experiment, exper- experimental reasons. Indeed. All right. Well, thank you very much, Guy, for that thought experiment. Let's go to Jacob Court now, who says, quite simply, what are some of your favorite poop housery moments in soccer history? And just to clarify, uh, poop housery, we, Graham, do we. Uh, interpret that as basically the dark arts winding up the opposition being a bit cheeky going outside of sportsmanship and the rules for gain is that fair yeah what Sergio Ramos does essentially that's poophousery so I I have two categories of poophousery one where it's sort of done for illicit evil means your Chiellini horse collarings and then ones where it's just hilarious. And the ones I like... Well, are the that, hel- is, that is subjective. I would contest that the Chiellini horse collaring was All hilarious. Right. But Settle down, continue. Sit down. Um, the, 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 in, the, in the hilarious category for me would be something like my favourite, which is Christian Fuchs taking the throw on into Alexis Sanchez's face because he refused to move out of the way. Do you remember, <laughs> remember that one? that one, yeah. Arsenal Leicester, he just, uh, uh, Sanchez refused to move back and he just literally launched it straight into his face. That was great. I like that. 
very much. Yeah, that is, that is a good one. Um, I know through your involvement with Charlotte that you'll have spoken to Christian Fuchs a number of times. Is that one, is that like his biggest humble brag? Like not the time he won a Premier League title with uh, Leicester City, but the time that he full on threw a football into the face of Alexis Sanchez. Is that like the first thing he brings up at a bar? You might get a cheeky smile, but he's very, he's a very professional man, Graham. So uh, probably wouldn't, wouldn't <laughs> dwell on it too much, I would suggest. Uh, where, where did you go with this one, Graham? Okay, so there are there are a few um, there are a few that stick in the the memory. Some of the some of the best poop house moments are little silly things like that like that Christian Fuchs uh, throwing into the face of Alexis Sanchez. Um, for example, Liverpool played Chelsea a couple seasons ago, and Sadio Mane. I don't know why this sticks in, in my mind so much, but Sadio Mane just full on pushed Romelu Lukaku from a free kick so that he was offside. Yes. He knew exactly what he was doing, and I love that he waited for the free kick to be taken, then just pushed Lukaku into an offside position and, and Liverpool got the, the free kick. I also think uh, like almost every single Jamie Vardy celebration in history is an all-time poop house moment. He is up there with Sergio Ramos as the, as the poop, poop house king. Um, a couple other suggestions. When Scotland beat Spain in March, one of my favourite moments was one of the ball boys not throwing the ball to Pedro Porro, so so he made him walk all the way over to to the to the side of the pitch, and it's a long runoff at Hamden, like there's a running track and everything, and so the ball boy's just holding the ball out in his hands like this, like come on, come and get this ball, makes Pedro Porro walk all the way to the side, and then as soon as he gets to the side, just throws it back <laughs> over his head, which was fantastic. In a similar vein, Scotland were playing Ukraine away from home last season. We needed a point. It's nil nil. Five minutes left to play. Aaron Hickey gets booked for kicking the ball away to waste time. You see players do that all the time. Free kicks given, Hickey kicks the ball away to waste a few more seconds. They then bring the ball over, place it on the ground, and then just as they're about to take the free kick, Lyndon Dix runs up and puts it away into the stand again. He takes the booking for that. I love that moment. But the all-time poop house moment, at least in Premier League history, I think has to be Emmanuel Adebayor against Mm. Arsenal. He had taken so much abuse in that game. Of course, used to play for Arsenal, was one of the first kind of Abu Dhabi signings at Manchester City, one of the first big money signings. He scores the winner for City against Arsenal and then sprints the entire length of the Etihad pitch to knee slide in front of the Arsenal fans. It was just a, a complete chef's kiss moment. Yeah. And in a similar vein, Mourinho at the at the camp now, I think, celebrating Inter beating Barcelona in front of the Barcelona director's box. That was magnificent. Uh, so, yeah, those are... Those are the things that stick in my mind. There's probably a whole Mourinho subsection we could go into there for Poop as well. I'm pretty sure Jamie Vardy did that same Adebayor ran to one end to the other this season uh, to run to yeah. uh, away fans as well, which is pretty good behaviour from him. Good stuff. Um, Joe, any any nominees here? We're going to have uh, Matt Miazga goading Red Bulls fans during penalty shootouts in our list. It's it's a good one. It's a really, really good one. Matt Miazga sort of embodies a lot of this as well, just at a slightly lower playing level than Sergio Ramos or, or Pepe or anybody along those lines. Uh, the couple that I've got on my list, one is American soccer, one is just iconic. They're both iconic, but just, again, we're, we're sort of different levels here. Clint Dempsey getting a red card after tearing up the referee's notebook. I don't know if you guys remember this at all. Back in 2015, it was Portland-Seattle in the U.S. Open Cup. And uh, this is a little excerpt from a USA Today article about this. Uh, One of those ejections went to team captain Clint Dempsey, who was so furious after referee Daniel Radford issued a red card to teammate Michael Ariza, he appeared to knock the referee's notebook out of his hand and rip it up. Go watch the clip. It's an iconic Clint Dempsey moment, who is just also full of these kinds of moments as well. Dempsey fits that Was the referee aware of where he was from, though, Joe? Uh, I don't assume he was aware of where he was from, though, dog. Um, So that was probably the miscommunication there. I assume he would go back to the referee and do it differently um, if he could. 
The other one that I have on my list, this one is not one that I like think about when I go to bed at night. It doesn't bring me any great joy, but Ryan, because you're here, I have to bring it up. The Hand of God goal has to be on this list, like just for pure iconic reasons. 1986, World Cup quarterfinal, Argentina versus England. The cross comes in from the wing. Maradona puts his fist up behind his head. Everybody on the planet sees it except for the referee. The broadcasters see it. The fans see it. Everybody sees it except for the referee. The ball hits the back of the net. Argentina go on to win that game. Maradona also scores a phenomenal goal in that game that no one remembers because he did a little cheaty thing. And then Argentina go on to win the World Cup and England have to go home. So that is a a pretty iconic one. So close to closing my laptop lid just then. So Mm. close. So close. Almost got him. Next time. He almost got him. <laughs> Maradona's got a, probably a subset of uh, Poop Algae as well. Paul Gascoigne, uh, Graham, I'm, I, he must have a few moments as well. Wasn't there a time where he uh, he showed the referee, uh, the referee dropped this card, he showed the referee oh, a yeah. card and then got booked for doing that himself. Uh, <laughs> that that goes more into the playful side of things for me. Yeah, Gascoigne was 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 good for some Poop House moments and also for attracting some Poop House moments, the most famous of which being Vinnie Jones, uh, how would you say, like getting his hand in about Gascoigne's gentleman's lunchbox. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And yeah, that's quite an, a, a famous Poop House moment as well. I have a signed photo of it, signed by both players on my wall, Graham. Do you? I do. <laughs> I do. I quite like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. I'll, uh, I'll show you sometime my... Uh... It's groin grabbing fun, Graham, is what it is. All right. Nope. Thank you very much, Jacob, for that question on Poop Housery. By the way, uh, let's get this going in the Discord. Patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show to access our Discord. Let's have some more Poop Housery moments of our favourites uh, in there, too. One more question today Zach Lippert. Time travellers arrive from 20, 40, and 60 years ago, and all they care about is soccer. What would be the hardest thing to explain about soccer today? Uh, All right, so I guess we should start off, uh, Joe, with 20 years ago. Uh, My nomination to tell the time travellers is that uh, Man City win stuff now. That will be my. Uh, that was thing. top of my list yeah. as well. I've got Man City are the most dominant team in the world, and yeah. they're owned by a country. And yeah. another Premier League club is owned by another country, and yeah. another country wanted to buy a different Premier League club. That was top of my list. Yeah. yeah. So Man City in 2002 were a second division side. In 99, they were a third division side. If you told them they would be a global powerhouse, Joe, I think uh, the time travelers would say, "What? What? What?" Well, that and just the contrast with Manchester United, how differently those clubs have progressed in recent years. Manchester City, obviously, their stock rising at an incredible rate thanks to money and country reasons. And Manchester United sort of crumbling. They were everything back in you know the early 2000s. That is not the case at this point in time. They are one of the worst run clubs on the planet, and they're not a particularly impressive club at the moment either. That flip-flop, I think, makes Manchester City's rise even more notable and maybe difficult to comprehend. Along with that, the, the top item on my list, Graham, is exactly what you just said, that countries now own soccer teams. I feel like 40 or 60 years ago, when the future was still much more mysterious, like it's easier for us to project 20 years in the future than 60, obviously. I think you you sort of think about, okay, what's going to happen on Y2K? What's going to happen in the 2000s? It's going to be so futuristic. I think 40 or 60 years ago, you'd still have a hard time explaining that countries now own soccer teams, but I don't think it would be as difficult to explain as uh, as sort of for for uh, you know 20 years ago. So I think it's pretty ridiculous that that's a, a thing that actually happens now, and I think explaining that could be a real challenge to the 20-year people. Yeah. How about, Graham, if we tell someone from 2003 that Cristiano Ronaldo is still playing, uh, he joined Man United in 2003, and that he's playing in Saudi Arabia? Would that be surprising? 
Uh, about as surprising as the current Ballon d'Or holder playing in uh, in MLS and playing in South Florida. You go, oh, so for uh, <laughs> the Fusion then? No, no, different team. Yeah, that would be a little bit confusing. Also, confusing. Also, can you imagine trying to explain MLS roster rules to a time traveller from... Uh, from 1960 it's difficult enough trying to understand it as someone from the 21st century so yeah that would that would bend their mind a bit it would i think um any of these groups would be uh shocked by leicester winning the premier league as well uh even in 2002 2003 leicester were not a top division side uh that would be a shock if i'm going to look at the 40 year category so we're going back to what 1983 i think the biggest surprise maybe for certainly for an english uh or european fan would be how huge and sanitized the English product has become as a commercial thing. Uh, in that era, in the early to late 80s, uh, soccer was not a fun, family-friendly, sanitized place to be. It was not a broadcast commercial product. So to see how far it's come, I think that would be quite shocking for many people. Like back then, stadiums were dilapidated. This is not long before all European clubs were banned from European competition thanks to the behaviour of uh, certain Liverpool fans. Uh, so this, that, that sort of sea change and the influx of money, I think, from four, in the last 40 years would be a big surprise. Yeah, the English football in the eighties was in a was in a pretty bad state, and you're right, Ryan. The, the 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 rise in English football in the Premier League era has been pretty dramatic to the point where it's undisputed now that the Premier League is the is, is the best quality uh, league in the world. I remember even like five maybe a little bit longer than that like eight years ago there was a genuine debate about whether the Premier League was the best league in the world or whether it was La Liga that was kind of at the height of the Ronaldo Messi uh, rivalry now there is no debate it's it's mm. the Premier League I think if you were to go back to the the time traveller from the, the 60s or whatever 60 years ago coming through the, the portal like Doctor Strange into current uh, present day I think they would be surprised at how small the number of clubs that are capable of winning a Champions League slash European Cup is. Because if you go back to kind of the 50s and 60s, um, yeah, of course, you have good teams that win, make multiple finals and, and win the European Cup uh, a few times in a row, like Real Madrid did it three times in a row in the 50s. Inter Milan did it twice in a row in the 60s. Manchester United were strong around the 60s. But if you look at the clubs that are in these finals, there is a great variety to those clubs. And then you fast forward to present day, and really it's like Man City, Real Madrid, Barcelona, Liverpool... That's Bayern Munich. That's kind of it. Those are the clubs that make those finals year after year. So the number of elite level teams has contracted to about five or six. Yeah, I can imagine you going back to the sixties and and the sixties fans saying, "Oh, so how many European cups of Red Star Belgrade won now? They, they, they're, they're in what country now? What? What's happening? <laughs> San Etienne. How many finals have they made since uh, nineteen seventy six? All right, zero. And Celtic haven't made it to a European Cup final again either. Yeah, wow, confusing. Wow, another one for you, Joe. I reckon if you go back to the uh, the time travelers from the eighties and you tell them. In the next 30 years, Manchester United will win 13 league titles and two European Cups. That is surprisingly surprising for someone from 1983, I'd say, because prior to that, Joe, Man United hadn't won anything since 1967. Uh, and they'd been in the second division not long before that as well. Surprising. Boom. I like it. I like it, Ryan. The only, I mean, I, don't, I, I can't yes end you on that one. The only, the only other ones that I have on my list is, uh, I think for the 1960s folks, uh, I think it would be hard to explain that we don't let players drink a ton and smoke a ton like during games or immediately before games, communicating that those things are, are bad and maybe not as useful for high-performing athletes or anyone. I think that would be a very useful thing to explain and potentially difficult. 
The last one on my list is that we're going to have a World Cup in six countries in 2030. That is, that's the last item. I think regardless of what year you're from, if you're from 2022, I think you're having a hard time explaining that because we had a hard time explaining it like two months ago on the big thing. So uh, that to me is still a little crazy that it's happening. Yeah. And I think explaining that to time travelers would be very challenging. Compression tights. That's something that someone from the 60s wouldn't be able to understand. But they were wearing like full-on sweaters to play soccer in. And now we've got players wearing compression tights and Under Armour layers and all that sort of stuff. Snoods, Graham. Snoods. Remember them? They I were do big, remember they? them. Samir Nasri. He, he owns <laughs> stocks and snoods. I'm sure of it. I'm sure they're doing great right now, those stocks. Um, how about the idea that teams, many big teams, have more fans abroad than in their own city or country? Is that surprising for even 20 years I think ago? It, um, maybe not 20 years ago, because I think the globalization of football had already started. I remember, I mean, we watched the Beckham documentary, right? When Beckham goes with Real Madrid to wherever that is, Japan, I think it was maybe, mm-hmm. on tour. And we saw the crowds there. That must have been like 2003. So we were well into the globalization of soccer at that point. Um, but yeah, if you were to go back to the 60s when football was very much rooted in local communities, even more so than it is today, yeah, I think that would be pretty surprising to a lot of fans. Wow. Also, if you're a time traveler and all you care about is soccer, you mean, like, there's other things you could do with a time travel device, I would suggest, you know? Mm, I don't think so. Go back and see those dinosaurs on Noah's Ark, right, Joe? Yeah. That's, I think that's exactly yep. how it went down, Ryan. I thought, I can't believe we've gone through this far without ever getting Graham to, to bring it back to the future. I'm, I'm just absolutely shocked by that. I'm so. holding myself back. I'm holding myself I'm back. proud of you, Graham. We already Thank had you. a uh, Back to the Future reference this week with uh, Joe, Joey Scoops and uh, his, uh, yeah. his means his means <laughs> and ways. There we go. Great Scott. <laughs> Great Scott, indeed. Why don't we close up the listener mailbag for another week? Uh, thank you very much to everybody who has submitted. Once again, totalsoccershow.com slash questions if you would like to do so. But for now, Graham Rutherford, excellent question answering as always, my good man. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. Thank you very much, Joe Lowry. Same thing for you. Aw, and same thing Graham said to you. Thanks. Thank you very much, listener, for joining us on this one. We'll be back on the feed very shortly indeed. But for now, bye! As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. 
Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. 